Right. Um, that must be, well, that is, together with uh, a number of other old hymns, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, that hymn is sang now is one of my favorites. And if the Lord hasn't come, I hope they sing it at my funeral. So you guys have all been notified. Must appear on the, on my, uh, what do you call it? Obituary paper thing in me. I've got two requests, that hymn and no videos of my life, please. It's embarrassing. Uh, it's good to be back. Um, I missed you guys last week. Uh, I really did. So it's good to be back here with you, with those who love us and whom we can share our, our, our life. Um, thanks for the prayers. Um, so I've survived my second bout of COVID. Same time last year, went through it. Both times still proudly unvaccinated, yay. Thank the Lord for over-counter medicine that could work, and ivermectin, yay. So uh, just throwing my little bit in there for, I'm not being paid, they're not supporting me uh, in any form or fashion. It's just that um, it's good to know that God remains sovereign in all things. So, yeah, it's good to be back and just to share with you something that is on my heart this morning and will be there for a little while. So, uh, just to clear up some things, um, those of you who have been <clears throat> following the sermons I've been preaching for some time, um, last year I got into John chapter 3 as an interim slot after I finished 1 Corinthians and not wanting to start something before the beginning of this year. So, got into that um, and got to a point where I kind of felt I'd stop there. Um, certainly a lot to go on with, but then I'd have to preach the entire Gospel of John, otherwise it starts falling to pieces. Uh, so not having to want to go back to first John, John chapter 1 and push your way through, um, I've decided on something else. And getting here has been a, has been a journey, as they say. Uh, my intention was to preach uh, Galatians, and then I was wisely counseled that, do you understand the uh, extremely... Uh, complex background uh, historically and from Old Testament perspective of Galatians. Maybe you should think about it. Well, it wasn't sitting that way. It was very encouraging. But it gave me pause, and I decided, well, let me choose something which is probably going to be the easiest book to preach. Now, I went against my own advice. There is no easy book to preach. But nonetheless, I chose to preach what we had before this morning, Philemon. The last in the canonical collection of Paul's epistles the shortest of Paul's epistles, and a unusually personal epistle. I know you know we know you wrote to Timothy, we know you wrote to Titus, but that was around church issues. This is a very personal epistle, and yet not, uh, or should not be, ex- um, should not be circumvented by the church. Should not be ignored by the church. So why Philemon? Well, Philemon's not preached very often, and when it is done is done as a once-off sermon. And I think that does injustice to Philemon. So let's read Philemon, and then we will get into the preaching of Philemon, or as you'll soon see, part thereof. Philemon. Only one chapter, so we start at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, <coughs> to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Occupus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for life, yet for, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, <coughs> I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. 
I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that he might have been back or that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant or a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. <coughs> Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. At that we can say amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you that we gather this morning in the presence of the one who alone can give illumination to the word that he has written. For you have inspired every word we read between these covers. We thank you for the fact that these words hold true for us both individually and as a church. And this morning we pray that you may give us clarity of, of delivery, clarity of thought, obedient hearts. And as we hear and understand your word, that our lives may be commensurately changed because of your word being applied to our lives in faith. We pray for your grace in this, to this end in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. As I said, this, this book isn't often preached, and I think people do it at their service, and I'll tell you why I think so. Uh, and when it is preaches a one sermon, I've even heard somebody say, I'm preaching Philemon. Only 25 verses, this won't be a long sermon. I think it's wrong. They seem to take this book as a simple book, which results in a failure to engage with the text and the context. It's important that we understand this. It's perceived as a private matter and therefore seemingly inconsequential for the church at large. But it's not a private matter, although it is a personal matter. And we're going to see that as we touch on it this morning. My motivation to preach Philemon, well, I believe that uh, epistles like Romans and, and Hebrews, which are complex from a theological perspective, it's got a rich wealth of doctrinal truth. We seem to think that that's books to preach, but not Philemon. Well, Philemon is equally inspired as Romans and Hebrews. Philemon is not just the imagination or the writings of Paul as a man only, but God has deemed it fit to take one of Paul's many personal letters and inspire it. I'm not sure at which point in time Paul knew this letter was inspired. He started writing a personal letter, and indeed we'll see soon that this is part of a group of letters. And I believe that as he was writing Colossians, he, started, and he thought about a particular case in the church in Colossians. He wrote to the Colossian church, and then he writes to this man, Philemon, in a personal note, uh, but God inspired both equally. So we should not denigrate uh, Philemon to kind of insignificant, uh, immaterial, or not of great value. It has tremendous value. And we will be surprised at how much is, is uncovered in Philemon that starts us to think along deep theological truths. Uh, we're going to, uh, as possibly as one of the sub-sermons, be looking at the sovereignty of God and salvation. We're going to be looking at uh, as we go through the book, uh, slavery, because we have a, a, a current uh, um, perception that slavery is in the found in the Bible, where the Old and New Testament kind of is the same as slavery as it was in the Deep South, or slavery as it was here under the Dutch East India Company. It's not the same. We have to understand that because um, the way it works in the Scriptures does impact how we understand that context so we don't misapply it. Today. So those things will be coming out of Philemon. Philemon gives us a chance to look into many aspects of our lives privately and as a church. So please, 
do not think it is a, a epistle to be glossed over. It's, it's, it's fully inspired. It complies entirely with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be com- complete, equipped for every good work. It will comply with all of those uh, intentions of the inspiration or the outspiration of Scripture. This epistle complies entirely with what Peter says in his, in his second epistle, that when Paul wrote this, he was like men who spoke from God as they carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I hope I've, I've emphasized and I hope I've drummed at home that this is not something we should look at quickly, uh, glibly, and try and just get through it because it's there between uh, Titus and, and Hebrew. Hebrews. So, this letter has several unique features, uh, gems worth searching out, and therefore that's why I'm preaching it. So this morning's sermon is going to be a bit teachy and preachy. Um, it's introduction. Uh, with the introductions, we deal with um, the context in which this letter was written, backgrounds, dates, and places. So some of the comes about a bit, comes across a bit teachy, but it's necessary to understand where this is set, because some things that we go over quickly actually need to be unpacked to understand this, and I'll tell you why later on, when how around a, sing, a single pronoun, people can form an entirely different idea of what Philemon is about. So, what can we say about the background? What background information do we have that will help us understand this letter better? First of all, this letter was written by Paul, by Paul from a Roman prison. Uh, this was his first imprisonment, and it was an imprisonment which was reasonably lenient in that he could have visitors, uh, he could engage in writing, which we have before us this morning. Uh, the believers were able to stay with him and care for his needs, uh, and he lived in his own house, away from the horrendous uh, penal facility that other Roman prisoners would have been kept in. So it was still a prison, uh, and he wasn't free to move anywhere else, but it had reasonable comfort and leniency. And even though it was lenient, he would have been constantly guarded by Roman soldiers. He was a soldier trained him at all times. He was a prisoner. The upside was that that soldier got the gospel day in and day out. He was force-fed the gospel, I think, in so many ways. When, 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 when Paul in, in, uh, engaged with um, uh, Luke and Demas and, and Onesimus, he heard that engagement, uh, which would be biblical. And so he was chained to a man who could not but hear the gospel. And during the first Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote four letters. They've come to be known as the prison epistles. Um, the prison epistles forms a group of letters written at the same time, from the same place. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians. Uh, Colossians and Philemon. Apologies. Um, and Colossians and, Colossians and Philemon uh, really are very often um, uh, presented as, um, as twin epistles, Yet it's, 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 it's enormously significant how seldom Philemon is referenced anywhere. Uh, people very seldom reference something in reference to Philemon. They, they reference Colossians, they reference Philippians, and Ephesians, but very seldom Philemon. So it seems that Philemon uh, has become kind of the, um, the orphan child of epistles, and I think we should work hard against that. How do we know that these four letters are part of a group called the, uh, the, the, the prison epistles. Well, they are all linked together by several uh, instances of common internal evidence. For instance, all four epistles make reference to his, to his imprisonment. Uh, Ephesians 3, Philippians 1, Colossians 4, and Philemon in verse 1 and 9 all make reference to the fact that Paul is a prisoner, prisoner for Christ, but also literally a prisoner, imprisoned because of Christ. Um, that is clear from the Scriptures. The similarities between the details of Paul's imprisonment given in Acts and the prison epistles support that tradition. So when we look at Acts, especially the last chapters of Acts, uh, particularly to chapter 28, uh, we find that uh, Paul's uh, um, um, conditions there align well with these epistles. Uh, also that he uh, was chained to the God, he could receive visits, as I said before, and he had an opportunity to preach the gospel. All those just come out as similar uh, points within those four epistles. Place, I've already said it, is in Rome, in the house prison, he's first imprisoned, imprisonment, and even that's being challenged some, from time to time, but we won't challenge that this morning. 
the date, uh, AD 6062. Uh, this is about probably six, seven years before Paul is executed. Uh, that imprisonment was a harsh one. It was a terrible one. He was thrown into a, into a disease-infested, dark, dark, dank pit, and only Timothy was there to support him. This one is different. Uh, AD 6062, uh, and Paul is really here in Rome because he says, I appeal to Caesar. We read that verse this morning, chapter this morning, chapter before, and round about there, he appeals to Caesar. So he's told, to Caesar you appeal, to Caesar you will go. And so he's in Rome waiting to, be, to appeal to Caesar, uh, the date AD 6062. What's the main verse? So we're trying to find a main verse to see where we're going with this. Well, the main verse, as far as I've looked at this, uh, really is verses, uh, verses 17 to 19. Verse 17 says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So Paul is setting up a dynamic there, which has come clearly out of this epistle. If he has wronged it all, I will repay it. And he sets up another paradigm, which he's trying to make uh, Philemon subscribe to, uh, apply with, comply with. So that really forms the heart of this, of this, uh, this, this book. And the purpose is Paul writes to Philemon, appealing to him to receive his slave Onesimus, with forgiveness and love as he returns to Philemon, no longer just a slave, but now also as a brother. This man went away, a slave, he comes back a brother, and Paul is facilitating a smooth, um, uh, um, not easy, but certainly peaceful, graceful um, transition back to the home which he had run away from. Divisions, four uh, overarching divisions, um, one to three, the introduction, which we'll do this morning, uh, four to seven, affirmation of Philemon's faith, eight to 21, appeal to Philemon for fellowship, 22 to 25, the salutation. So those are the broad overarching divisions, and we will probably get some subdivisions as we go through those portions. These four divisions uh, of Philemon exactly mirror the letter form of his day. So when letters were written in that day, they followed this form. One, one two, three would be the opening salutation containing the writer's name, the recipient's name, and the greeting. That was standard. Uh, as we see in four to seven, it was a prayer, a blessing, or thanksgiving. That was standard in, 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 in normal letters, day-to-day letters. Uh, the, the third part would be the body of the letter, which contained the occasion for the letter. And finally, the final greeting. And Philemon follows that uh, format uh, completely. He doesn't deviate from it. It is there on uh, every form and fashion. So for our sermon this morning, we will look at verses 1 to 3, and I will try to get to that in the time allotted to me. Uh, this, is the, this is the greeting section, verses 1 to 3, is the greeting section of Paul's uh, epistle to Philemon. And I just stop myself, I keep wanting to say to Philippians because this kind of falls on the tongue. Although it's in the same group of letters, it's not the one we're preaching on this morning. So Philemon, chapter, Philemon, Philemon verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Right away, we've, we hit something in Philemon that's found nowhere else. So this is the uniqueness that keeps creeping out as we read Philemon. This book has some unique features, even though it is a letter like the others from Paul in prison and dealing with an issue at hand. <laughs> Paul uses a unique description of Philemon in uh, this epistle. He calls himself a prisoner. Of the 13 epistles that Paul has written, he, uses him, he identifies himself as an apostle nine times. He identifies himself as a servant three times, and sometimes he uses both servant and apostle. Uh, in two of the epistles, one in two Thessalonians, he simply says, uh, Paul, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So it's clear that Paul has uh, ways to introduce himself that is repetitive as we go through uh, the, his, his epistles. And only once in all 13 epistles does he identify himself in the greeting section as a prisoner of Christ, and it's here. Here, he identifies him exclusively, differently than in any other epistle. Still Paul, it's the same Paul who's an apostle, the same Paul who's a servant, the same Paul who is a co-worker with Silvanus and Timothy, but in this case, to Philemon, he says, Paul the prisoner, and I believe that that is part of his strategy to associate uh, with Onesimus in a way that to make uh, Philemon open to what Paul's going to propose to him. And Paul does indeed propose to him, but Paul doesn't make this a command. Uh, 
in this amazing epistle of uh, 25 verses, of 39 verbs in verbal form, there's only three imperatives. And none of those are directed at Onesimus or directed at Philemon, which we'll get to at another sermon. So Paul uh, is either a prisoner for Christ, as he is if he has it, or as all other uh, reliable versions say, a prisoner of Christ, which ties it with its grammatical form. And again, I think Paul is using the word for, well, sorry, not Paul. I think that the ESV translators has put for in there as opposed to of, a slight nuance to, um, to capture the sense of what Philemon is all about. Given this identification as unique in this epistle, and given that this is primarily a personal letter, it is important that we try to determine why Paul is using this phrase of being a prisoner. Many expositors have taken this to mean that Paul is using the term prisoner for Christ, or prisoner for Jesus Christ, in the same way as he uses apostle of Jesus Christ, as a way of kind of a certain authority. I don't know why they think that, but maybe they think Paul does that. In, the ca- in this case, the authority of one who has been sent to jail for his commitment to carry out his apostolic calling. But some say, well, Paul is a certain authority to this term. But Paul does not use this description in any of the other prison epistles where his authority needs to be asserted because he's dealing with serious problems in the church that he's writing to. He, there he identifies himself as the apostle. So he doesn't use it in any of the other prison epistles. Why would he then use it here? Late in this epistle, Paul will use a strategy of verbal persuasion common to his day. And, the, and identify himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus may be laying the ground for a strong strategy of persuasion. I will need to prove that to you later on, uh, not today, but I do think it comes as you listen to Paul's words and the words he directs at Philemon. We see this again in verse 29. <laughs> Sorry, no 29. We should also have no 29. Um, verse 9, where Paul says, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, indicating his sacrifice for the gospel. Paul gave up much in his life. He gave up, when you read the Corinthians, you can read how much he gave up. The benefits that other apostles were enjoying, he gave up so that he could not be accused of doing this for gain. And he even gave up his freedom and submitted to be imprisonment because he sacrificed his life for the gospel. It appears that Paul is preparing Philemon to give up something himself, his pride, his desire for retribution. Remember when slaves um, ran away and came back, they were were usually caught, recaptured, and returned by force. They faced retribution. They could even face death. Um, So Paul is trying to make sure that this is averted, not the death, but certainly retribution. Uh, Perhaps he was looking for repayment of his losses, and Paul touched on that also in the epistle we read this morning. So Paul appeals to Philemon to give up something for the greater good of being restored to Onesimus, just as Paul gave up his freedom for preaching the gospel. Paul's going to continue in this epistle, and listen for it as we preach through it. Bring Philemon and draw him to try and align himself with many things that Paul did or was exposed to so that he can ensure. And he says says later on, I'm confident he will do this. He knows that what he's doing is reaching home to Philemon, because Philemon is a good, uh, obedient, a loving, gracious, caring believer. You'll see that too. The letter is very different in tone to most of the other Pauline epistles. There's no admonishment for specific sins. No calling to account those who were conducting themselves in an unchristlike way. No condemnation of sexual immorality or leaning towards idolatry. This is a really unique epistle. And while Paul is certainly preempting a sins of pride and sins of anger, uh, nothing is stated in this epistle. It really looks like just a, a personal note, a memo jotted as a postscript to Colossians. It's not. It's an inspired letter. And we need to know what does that letter have for us. Because while we understand clearly uh, that within the context of the letter, it applies to Philemon and his household, uh, because it's inscripturated, uh, it has to have meaning for us, and we need to find principles and truths that will apply to us as we go through this epistle. We see more of that when we get on from verse 4 onwards, when it deals mainly between Paul and Philemon. So if Paul finishes that first sentence and says, and Timothy, our brother. Paul includes Timothy in the introduction of his letter. Uh, he's done this more than once. More precisely, he calls Timothy our brother, 
a term that seems to draw Paul, Timothy, and Philemon together in a brotherly fellowship. Paul uses this term, our brother, in only two other greetings. Again, uh, not unique, but a limited use of a term for one who is uh, part of Paul's introduction in writing to other people. That's going to come up more and more as we go through Philemon. Um, firstly, he uses in 2 Corinthians. Now, understanding 2 Corinthians is written after Timothy has a hugely acrimonious, um, fearful, unpleasant um, interaction with the church. Timothy goes to Corinthian church on behalf of Paul, and he approaches it with fear, and with, with fear and with a lot of concern. Uh, Timothy, by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy, Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthian church understand that Timothy is a good brother. And so, when he writes to Sikh Corinthians, he uses that term, Timothy, our brother. In an attempt to remind uh, this church at Corinth that Timothy was indeed a trusted brother. And by accepting him as, as, a, and accepting him as such, any hard feelings they had from previous meetings should be set aside. So we understand why Paul uses our brother for Timothy in 2 Corinthians. He uses it again in, the other, in another prison epistle, in, um, as he says in Colossians, he refers to Timothy as a brother. It's not clear exactly why he uses it, but some have proposed that when Timothy was in Ephesus, he had met through Epaphras uh, many of the Colossian believers, and so he was familiar to them, and they knew him as a brother, and so therefore it is possible that Paul includes it with that um, uh, uh, description, our brother, because he was known to many in that church. The third time he uses it is here in Philemon, where Paul says, Timothy, our brother. So he's using that not only because they probably know him in Colossae, but because Paul's also trying to establish a, a relationship that's based on brotherhood uh, uh, coming almost out of koinonia. He's trying to establish fellowship and brotherhood. So Paul, from the beginning, starts establishing a paradigm that's going to drive Philemon to want Onesimus back at all costs. Paul follows up with saying to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Occupus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Again, something we gloss over. Something we say, well, it's just an introduction, it's names there. There's huge problems with this uh, in more ways than you may realize. It is commonly accepted that this letter is addressed to Philemon as the title bears out. But Philemon is not the only addressee. Paul includes to Aphia, to Archippus, and to the local church in Colossians. So there's actually four addresses in Paul's uh, opening uh, statements. The letter has four people in mind. He says, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. All we know about Philemon is what is said about him in this letter. His name appears nowhere else. In no other epistle, it doesn't appear in the Acts. We've got no idea about Philemon except what we know about him here. And wherever it is referenced elsewhere because of his association with others. We are not told that he is a resident of Colossae. We come to that conclusion by the process of deduction. Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 4 verse 9 that Onesimus is one of them, the Colossian church, that is from Colossae, and we know from the epistle before us, Philemon, that Onesimus is a slave of Philemon. Therefore, Paul Philemon also has to be a uh, resident of Colossae. That's obvious deduction. We know that he is reasonably wealthy as he owns a large house, enough to accommodate the Colossian church, a house large enough to at least have one guest room for any visiting uh, brother or sister. We know that about him from the text. Uh, Paul mentions he is refreshing the hearts of the saints, which probably includes both spiritual and financial wisdom, which we know is a man of generosity. So this we know from the text. We can tell from Philemon itself that he was a generous man, he was a, a wealthy man, <laughs> he was indeed a slave owner. Uh, so all of that, to sum all of this up, we know what we know about this Colossian believer, that he was a generous, hospitable brother who hosted the church in his house and served others in a loving way. And again, we consider more about that when we get to verse 4 and onwards. A lot's going to happen from verse 4 as we go through. But then also he says, uh, and to Aphia, our sister. Like Philemon, we know about, uh, all we know about Aphia is in this epistle. She's not mentioned anywhere else. She doesn't appear in any list of names, only here. And all that we can say with certainty from this epistle is that she's an associate of Philemon, and she's a believer. That's clear. Our sister 
together we mentioned with Philemon, those become obvious, to, almost too obvious to have to have to mention. But this minimal information has not prevented commentators from speculating on her relationship with Philemon, and for good reason. Paul has deemed it necessary to include her in the greeting section, and he could have left her out as easily as he, left, as he included her. We must accept that since he included her while writing under inspiration, it must be for some significance. Why include her if it wasn't significant? He could have left her out. He wouldn't have changed anything in the epistle. Uh, and had he included her, we have to ask why. How does inclusion of, of uh, Ephia enhance its understanding of Philemon? Paul does not address her as a, as a, as a fellow worker, one who labored side by side, as he does with Iodia and Syntyche and Philippians. There he says, these women are my fellow workers. He calls Philemon a fellow worker, and he calls Archippus a fellow soldier. And he could just as easily have called her a fellow worker, but he doesn't. And we have to conclude that she was not included in this letter because she sh shared in the work. Many writers with egalitarian leanings propose that she's included because she's a church leader in, uh, in Colossae. Well, we all know Paul's teaching on leadership, particularly surrounding elders, shepherds, pastors, and nowhere does he ever use a female noun for any of those uh, um, offices. He is, or for that office. Uh, he makes it clear that leadership in the church is under male headship, who is under the headship of Christ, and therefore uh, we can dis dispense with that immediately. Most other commentators believe that Ephia is uh, Philemon's wife. There's no evidence internally or elsewhere to support this, but the fact that she's mentioned keeps tugging at her desire to know who is this woman? Why is she here? Why does Paul mention her uh, in, this, in this list of names? In Acts chapter 18 to 19, Luke writes about a Christian husband and wife, and he makes it easy. He writes about Aquila and Priscilla, and it's clear from Luke's uh, um, writing that that is a married couple. He makes it clear. We don't have to even guess at it. He makes it clear that, that they are a couple and how they are using God's work. It would have been easier for us if Paul had referred to Philemon and Ephia in the same way. But that clarity is not present in Philemon. And there's a reason for that. The only deduction we can make about inclusion is that she somehow is affected by the household problem Paul addresses in his personal letter. And if part of the problem, she would be part of the household. And the most likely role would be that of Philemon's wife. I keep wanting to say Philemon. If I do go there, it's easy, it is a recognized pronunciation elsewhere. Philemon's wife. This depends on logic, but not without plausibility. We know we have a challenge with this, but remember when Paul wrote to Philemon, and we know to the Colossians, they knew exactly who he was talking about. They knew exactly who this woman was, because she was part of their uh, community. We don't. Uh, we need to try and trace out why she is there or who she is. We know the husbands and wives in the Bible have shared responsibility in the running of their households. They shared in the income of the household. Again, Aquila and Priscilla were both tent makers, and so they collectively or, 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 or combined uh, their skills to bring in a living, uh, living finances, a livelihood. They both earned money for the household. They were jointly responsible for disposing. Also that, they, also that they are, it's clear from the scriptures that a husband and wife are jointly responsible for disposing of assets and jointly responsible for distribution, distributing the, the proceeds. That comes from a very um, strange uh, reference, Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we find a case where there is a husband and wife who have sold property, which they were, had a right to do equally, jointly. Uh, they received the proceeds, which they were jointly allowed to distribute, and they jointly lied about what they had done. Full responsibility. So whether it is the, the income from the family business, or whether it is the distribution of money from the family business, wives are intricately involved with the husband. Remember that. And this is a principle here right away for us to understand that when we uh, engage with our finances at home as a husband and wife, there should never be a my fund and a your fund. There should never be, and I know some of us, because of the way we receive our salaries, we have a my account and a your account. Uh, but when it comes to the, the, the total sum of the funds, receiving it and dispensing it, 
uh, we need to make sure that we are united. And this, again, gives you another idea why wives are able to go out and earn money. If it's a need to, to be there, then that may have to be done. It's not what is pre always preferred in some areas, but there's a need for husbands and wives to be collectively involved in making a livelihood and spending it. That's all to say that if we accept that Afia is Philemon's uh, wife, it would be reasonable to assume that she would be personally affected by the consequences of Onesimus' actions as it impacted her responsibilities. Hence, Paul includes in the letter, and I believe that she is his wife, and she's included for the fact that Paul's dealing with something that affects the household of Philemon, and she's part of the household as a significant role player. The attempt to identify is a challenge to us, not the regional recipients, I've said already. They were known, uh, she was known to them. This is an important point to remember whenever we read the scriptures and come across lack of descriptive details. There would be those things to be known to the receivers, the recipients of those epistles. We need to find out what those things are. So, Paul includes uh, a fear, and then he says, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. We have a similar situation with Archippus, even though he's mentioned elsewhere. He's mentioned more than once, and, but doesn't clear up understanding of who he is. Like Onesimus, Archippus is also mentioned in Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15 says this. Um, after he speaks about the brothers at Laodicea and talks about uh, Nympha and the church in the house, he says in verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That uh, instruction from Paul is, is it's imperative. Uh, will impact something we'll say about uh, Archippus later on. But we find Archippus recording Colossians, so we find him in two places in the scriptures, and yet we still don't know who he is. Paul calls Archippus a fellow soldier, whereas he calls Philemon a fellow worker, and that is significant. It's not just kind of trying to make it sound, it's not trying to get rid of redundancy. Uh, while Philemon was uh, a co-laborer or a fellow worker with Paul in the gospel, Archippus must have labored with Paul in the presence of conflict and danger, which is what a fellow soldier implies. Why would I say that? Well, Paul uses that term fellow soldier only twice. Again, uh, Philemon uh, is parted to something which is relatively unique in the writings of Paul. Paul uses that in Philemon, a prison epistle, and, um, and here in, and in Philemon and in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul uses both in reference to Epaphroditus, where he says in verse 25 of Philippians 2, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. So obviously Paul uses those two terms together to say two things about Epaphroditus. Verse 29 of Philippians 2. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that which was lacking in your service to me. Verse 30 of Philippians 2 particularly touches on the situation of working for the gospel at the cost of risking your life, implying this is not ordinary form of evangelism, but evangelism with something else. Risk, threat of loss of life, endangerment. And perhaps Archippus was engaged in the Lord's work in a similar way, which led Paul to call him fellow soldier. We don't know that. We have to infer that what Paul, yeah, Paul uses that word elsewhere in a prison epistle. This could help us understand Paul's command to Archippus in Colossians 4. See that you fulfill the ministry received. Paul is telling him, you have a ministry. It is a ministry possibly of risk. We, we, are, we are assuming, see, as a commandment, that you fulfill it. But while we know what kind of person Archippus is, we still don't know exactly who he is. And for the same reason as Appiah, Paul does not need to identify him as he's known to recipients, but not to us. Many expositors identify him as Philemon's son, someone in Philemon's household affected by the actions of Onesimus. And I think that that is a, is, a, is a good place to land because of another uh, convention of writing in the day of Paul. <clears throat> Some scholarly works point out that when Paul says uh, Philemon, a fear, uh, Archippus, he's following a convention of the order of nature. And so when things are written in this way, they address the father, the mother, and the son in general writing. And it seems that that is what Paul has done here. If we accept that Aphia is his wife and that Archippus is his son, which I do believe, I have no reason to doubt that, although it has to be arrived by 
um, foraging through various spaces. And finally, it says, which is possibly the most um, astounding one, and to the church in your house. This is probably the most interesting inclusion in the list for two reasons. Why is the church mentioned in the personal letter? And we'll touch on it quickly. And how do you understand the your in this clause? And that's critical. We remind ourselves again that the letter to Philemon was written at the same time as the one to the Colossians. And that Philemon was a resident of Colossae. Therefore, the reference to the church in your house is a reference to the Colossian church. Now, we say that now, but as we get to the end of this, we're going to have to find out why we can say it with confidence. Something that Paul included the church so that by making this issue of Onesimus a public one, Paul pressurized him into responding so that he could say, listen, I'm including the church, so they know what you must do, uh, they now are aware of, so be careful. Paul's not doing that. In Paul's entire letter, he has never tried to use threat or force. In fact, he says, uh, I do not compel you. I appeal to you. Uh, Paul is trying to facilitate a conflict-free transition of Onesimus back to his community. So by including the church here, Paul gives, the ex gives them access, the church access, to the reason why Philemon should accept Onesimus back and therefore give them, the church, an idea of how they should receive him back as a new believer in the congregation. So remember that they saw Onesimus leave as a slave, a runaway slave. They may already have formulated ideas about Onesimus in their mind. Paul says the same one is coming back to Philemon, he's coming back to that church. Make sure you receive him as I am encouraging Philemon to receive him. Remember, they met in Philemon's house and they were probably knew of Onesimus and the situation surrounding him. Which brings up point two. Is the, your house in verse two referring to Philemon's house? So that's obvious. Maybe not, depending where you go. This seems a strange question to ask, but it is not unreasonable one, grammatically speaking. So, when, a, when we get to biblical portions, and there's a number of uh, proper nouns, and then suddenly right introduces a, a pronoun, we need to decide who does that pronoun belong to, and we usually do it grammatically. Uh, so, first of all, we know this is a singular pronoun because of its construction, and if it doesn't refer to the home of uh, Philemon. Paul's not saying uh, the church which is in the house of you all. Uh, Denver knows that uh, intonation with an idea. It's not referring to the house as your plural, uh, um, uh, being the place where the church meets. It's, it's a singular form. So it's referring to one of the three people that precedes this, right? Secondly, it is, a, it is grammatically correct to link that personal pronoun as is generally done to the nearest antecedent, which in this case would be Archippus. So if you read it that way and only that way, you would say as well uh, to Philemon, to Ephia, to Archippus, and, uh, and to the church, which is in Archippus' house. Grammatically, yes, but it doesn't tie up with the rest of the book, and it changes the way we see the rest of the book. Taking this view would mean that the church was gathering in the house of Archippus, making him the rich homeowner, and by correlation, the probable true recipient of his letter and the owner of Onesimus. You may think, where do you suck that out? Well, it's not an, un an, an unlikely situation. Um, at least one renowned 20th century Bible scholar held this view. John Knox, not John Knox of the 16th century, but John Knox of the 20th century. John Knox, who died in 89, was amongst other things, professor of the New Testament at the Episcopal Theological Seminary. He taught at the University of Chicago Divinity School. He was a former editor of the Journal of Religion and Interpreter's Bible. So you reckon this man knows the Bible, and he did. He held this view uh, and led him to write an alternative interpretation of Philemon. He believed that Archippus is the person where, who owns the house that the church gathers in because Archippus is the nearest antecedent to York. A misunderstanding a simple pronoun, know your pronouns. You call, you make sure you use the right pronouns when you are in the scriptures. And misunderstanding a pronoun could change the entire way you look at everything that follows on. So it's important that we know who Paul speaks about when he says, your house. Besides the grammatical convention applied to, by John Knox, we also have to consider a standing convention of letter reform in the first century, which held that the main person in the letter was always mentioned first. In this case, that would be Philemon. So now we have two uh, possible paradigms Two things vying for uh, in prim uh, primacy. What do we decide? Well, uh, 
going with the convention of this letter, which we have hinted back to more and more than one, or referred back to more and more than once, uh, going with where the church uh, uh, follows out on this, going with the history of the church, we would say that it would be rightful to make the first um, uh, person written to the main person in this epistle. And so in the, the new NIV, I think it is in there, they actually do a, a thing to help you understand that. Uh, they write uh, to Philemon, dash, to Aphia, to Archippus, dash, to the church. So they join the church to Philemon, and almost in a parenthetical form, but not in a parenthetical form, put the, hub, mom, the, the wife and the son uh, next to Philemon. So, hope I haven't confused you, but I think we need to understand the church is in Philemon's house, and this letter is about Philemon and Onesimus, and not about the fact that Philemon is possibly uh, Archippus' brother, and Onesimus was on an errand for Archippus to Paul. Gets crazy. I promise you, it gets crazy. Stay with the right pronoun, stay with the right reference, stay with the right man, and we will be on track. So why include the church? The inclusion of the church in a letter with personal theme indicates how connected church life was in the first century. A practice we have largely lost today. In the church, in the first century, there was no such thing as church and, and secular. Your life was your life, and it was in the church. Remember, the church met in homes, so people came into your home on a regular basis. They saw things in your home on a regular basis. The church was involved with supporting each other because it was persecution. The church was, was involved in feeding each other because it was lack of food. The church was involved in protecting each other because people were being buffered and beaten. So the church was intricately, intimately, and completely involved in the life of, of, of the members, each member in the life of the other. And so Paul includes us letter to the church so that they may understand how this family, uh, personal instance, is going to roll out. Issues that we would consider private was dealt with openly before the whole church, which is why I think Paul uses the word uh, koinonia twice, at least in this, in, this, in this epistle, talking about Christian fellowship. Verse 3, as we roll to a close, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Greco-Roman letters, the salutation was followed by a simple uh, inclusion of greetings. We have seen this as we've gone through James with, with the Denver. This is seen in James 1 verse 1. Uh, James, uh, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, identifies the writer. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, identifies the recipients. Greetings. The greeting. So that form is a pretty standard form uh, throughout the New Testament. You'll find the letter from Jerusalem uh, wears the same format and layout. Paul develops this greeting section into his signature greeting, which is, which is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a common greeting in every one of Paul's <laughs> 13 epistles. He uses that full greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, several times in the scriptures. Only once does it reduce to grace and peace, and only once does it drop out the Lord Jesus Christ. But exclusively all else, he says grace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting of Paul always has grace preceding peace every time. And I think that's significant. Nothing takes place in the Christian life where it's peace or mercy, as he, as he says at, uh, to Timothy, uh, or anything else takes place unless the grace of God has become effective in our lives. Without the grace of God, all that we do today would have been totally impossible, meaningless, and have no future value. And it does have because of the grace of God. We often gloss over the combination of these two monumental blessings in Christ by saying that grace speaks to the Greek aspect of greeting and that peace, shalom, draws in the Jewish aspect. And that is true, but it's more than that. We're not negating that, but it's more than that. We often define grace as God's unmerited favor, but we should expand it to something more. By definition, grace is that which God does for mankind through his Son, which mankind cannot earn and does not deserve and will never merit. That's what grace is. Or, to put it another way, grace is all that God freely and non-meritoriously does for man and is free to do for man on the basis of Christ's person and work on the cross. It's more than just uh, the unmerited favor of God. It's that and a lot more. Grace, therefore, is the work of God for man and encompasses everything we receive from God. There's nothing that you and I receive from God that is not from grace. Like the rest of the world, we are exposed and are blessed by God's common grace. But we as um, 
the children of God, having been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we enjoy a special grace. And that grace comes with benefits that is hard to define and to explain because they are enormous and they will value from now till into eternity uh, in the future. What is peace? Well, peace is the English translation of the Jewish shalom. Paul uses the Greek word in the Greek text of arini, which means harmony, to join, I think. <coughs> Paul used it many times before, but in this particular case, he's speaking to a household who is trying to join a runaway slave to an owner. He's trying to bring these two together under a cloak of harmony to free them from any conflict. So how appropriate that this uh, greeting is here. Peace, to join harmoniously. It's defined as a state of untroubled tranquility, a state without war or dividing factions or enmity. So while grace and peace are embedded in every greeting of Paul, it seems especially significant in this epistle that is written for the purpose of reconciling two brothers and restoring harmony. The kind of fellowship could be restored only if Christ-like grace drove the process. Excluding Christ from that would have made that impossible. Hence, I think, adding the end to that, um, to that uh, thanksgiving is that, uh, or the greeting, is he adds in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace comes from both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not um, grace from uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, uh, peace from the Father. No, the divine God it does not work in that way. In fact, in that very, in that very um, uh, sentence, uh, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ immediately puts God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on an equal footing. As God, they equally, fully, and completely, completely dispense grace and peace as they choose, to whom they choose, and the way that they choose. So understand clearly, at no time does Paul ever separate uh, these two, God the Father and God the Jesus Christ, when it comes to the work of salvation. They are equally uh, sovereign and all of that. And we will touch on that at a later stage. So Paul desires that Philemon is submissive to this grace and submissive to this peace. And so that by letting God the Father and God, uh, the whole, God the Son permeate their lives with their grace and peace, we find that this house can be united without conflict, without fear, without retribution, and with joy because they'll be welcoming, welcoming back into their fold, one who left a sinner and is now a saint. I'm not sure where you are, but I do hope you understand that Philemon is not a simple book. It's not an easy book. It's a book that's going to challenge us in many levels. It's a book that has been inspired and should uh, cause us to think about ourselves as we read about what Paul tells Philemon to do under a, under a situation that you would have found, to put it mildly, irritating, impatient with having lost a slave. Uh, what about his business, uh, his self-sentence, and all of that? These things that we teach, they're not disconnected. They're all part of a whole, of living a Christ-honoring life uh, by his grace and in peace. For his name's sake, amen. Let us have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for having kept on record for our reading, for our understanding, for our growth, and for our Christian life. These, uh, these things... It changed the lives of many to whom they were written. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.